Hey, check it out. We're here. Welcome to Key House. I could never get your father to talk about his life here. My kids need a home. Does it have to be this home? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection podcast. We're focusing this season's episode on great sounding episodic content coming to you in your homes. And I'm really glad today to be talking with the team behind uh, a Netflix series called Lock and Key. Uh, we're here today with uh, J.R. Fountain, who is the supervising sound editor on the show. Good morning, J.R. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. And Eric Apps, who is the re-recording mixer on the show. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hi, Glenn. So, uh, I gotta say, you know, this is a really interesting show to me. Um, when I, when we were thinking about Michael Cole and I were thinking about putting together this series of podcast episodes, uh, to talk about, uh, episodic content, I kind of put a call out on social media specifically around like what shows are really sounding great and what are some really great Dolby Atmos shows to stream at home. And, uh, I got so many pings about lock and key. Um, you guys are doing some really amazing work on this show that your peers in the industry have definitely noticed. And uh, congratulations to you both. It's a really interesting show. Well, thanks. That's, Thank that's you. Really great to hear. Yeah. So it's the first season of this show, um, and we'll get into the specifics of it uh, in, in just a moment. But I'm kind of curious, always when something like this comes together and it's new, how did you guys get involved with this show? And at what point in the process did you guys come on board? The producer, uh, the sort of like on the ground producer is a guy named Rove Glasgow, who, um, I've worked, I worked with on the strain and colony before that. Um, so he contacted me about the show and, and told me about it and, and said he was, he would like to have me on board. Um, so I was sort of, uh, before, I think I was one of the first kind of post people, um, on board with it. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then it, we, the, the rest of the team sort of came together after that. Jared, what about you? Yeah. So I got involved in the show, uh, through sound dogs. I've been with them for a number of years. Um, and Nelson Ferreira who heads up, uh, heads up sound dogs. Uh, he, he got a hold of me. He was, uh, he thought I'd be a good fit for the show. And, um, that was basically how I got introduced to it. Well, before we get into some sort of the creative choices and the, and the, I've got lots of questions about specific scenes and environments in the film. Um, I want to, Eric, I want to dig in a little bit more about that. So you, you guys mix this show natively in Dolby Atmos in a, in a home theater environment. Can you kind of describe to me sort of what was the, you know, tell me about the stage, like what's the setup, um, kind of what's the size and how did you guys approach mixing natively in Atmos? Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it was an Atmos home theater format stage it was a um i guess a, a kind of moderate size episodic stage was it um is is when you say home uh, home atmos was it 7.1.4 or what's the configuration in the room uh, it's what's well, the seven yeah 7.1.4 well 7.1.2 um beds is what we were using but with but it was the four um ceiling speakers eight or 10 surround speakers and then the LCR and sub, um, on the front wall and all JBL, 
um, the all the uh, surrounds and um, ceiling speakers are the uh, is it 7, 700, 705, I think. And the, um, I'm trying to remember that um, Deluxe has, where we mixed it, has um, a very good JBL system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the 714, I guess, is effectively. So, JR, since you guys knew that it was going to be a, a Native Atmos mix all the way through, how did that affect the way you approached the sound design for the show? Yeah, I think um, in terms of the Atmos piece of it, I kind of relied a lot on Eric for that. Um, I, my biggest goal was just tr- to try and provide like all the pieces that he would need. We certainly were thinking about things in the ceiling and moving things around. Um, but I think like Eric really took care of a lot of that uh, kind of stuff once he got on the stage. We did have a conversation um, about, about sort of thinking in terms of things that could go in the height channels and, um, and spatial thing, which J- JR definitely um, took into account in the tracks. I'm curious, did you guys have any kind of like creative rules of the road? Cause I think one of the, you know, one of the major kind of uh, creative conceits of the show is that these keys unlock different environments and magical powers and um you know, and, and, and sometimes I've had conversations with, with artists and filmmakers where they say, you know, I wanted the, I wanted the, the real world to stay sort of five one ish. But then when we would go into these new environments, that was when we would really open up the Atmos. Was that kind of a, was that kind of a guiding principle for you guys? Or did, did it, were you, would, did that not matter at all? I think yes and no. You know, it depended, um, really on the source and, and where we were going and where we were coming from. Um, so, you know, if we were going from the real world into, say, like Bodhi's head, um, Bodhi's head was just hugely wide. There's stuff all over the place, right? But, um, but then back in the real world, it's you know it's a little bit more normal or whatever. Um, but then there was other memory sequences where we would flip from the the present tense or the the real world to this memory, and it would be a lot quieter. So like when we're in the bedroom um, with uh, Dad and uh, Kinsey, for instance. You know that that becomes a really intimate thing, but it's not so much because it's a flashback or a memory sequence. It's more because it's it's an intimate scene, and, and we want to be more intimate. And so, really, really, the scenes kind of dictated how wide or how narrow we were um, in our mix. Yeah, we were trying to, I think, contrast things not so much by sort of this was five one or this is stereo or monoe or whatever, and this is Atmos when we're in different environments, but but more just the, the style and quantity of sound and stuff. And that, so I was still using the Atmos um, kind of soundscape in just the regular world quite a lot, but in more subtle and more sort of realistic ways, like, you know, hearing seagulls over your head when you're at right. sea or something like that. Um, and just trying to make the real world a little more real. So one of the one of the first keys that we encounter is I think it's called the head key, um, and it allows you to um, it allows uh, whoever uses it to kind of access the inner world of their own brain. And for each character, that's very different. So Bodhi Bodhi is the youngest child, and his is kind of like a, it's almost sort of like an arcade sort of environment. Um, uh, I'm blanking on the character's name, but uh, Kinsey, who is the who's the daughter. Um, hers is sort of like a, 
a very empty, surreal, huge shopping mall. Um, so what, tell me a little bit about your approach to building the soundscapes of, of those internal um, environments that the characters access through their head keys. Yeah. So I think our biggest thing was just trying to make them unique to each of the characters. So, um, you know, so when we go into Bodhi's head, like we were talking about, it's, um, it's just this kind of like big arcade, really. There's like just stuff going on all over the place. And so, you know, I'm looking at the shot and I'm seeing, I'm seeing, um, arcade machines. I'm seeing like him bouncing around on a trampoline. Um, there's like a dinosaur in there. And so, you know, so I'm just trying to think of all the different fun kind of weird sounds I can throw in there. Um, you know, I had like jungle animals, uh, we had like bips and bleeps and I had like Ferraris driving by and, all that kind of stuff, just to really suggest a lot of fun. You know, it's like this little boy, right? So it's it's like his playhouse kind of thing. Guys, you gotta come see this. Follow me. Welcome to my head. Am I just super high? This is seriously amazing. Yeah, woo! This is awesome! Who's that? Yeah. Woo! My glee. Feelings can become living things here, too. How do you know that? It's my head. I just do. Okay. So trippy. So that was kind of his approach, but then somebody like Kinsey, she's in the mall, um, and it's a, it's a different vibe for sure. Right. Like it's still colorful, but it's, you know, it's in this mall setting. So it's maybe a bit more subdued, um, subdued. Um, but, uh, you know, I know like one of the things that was tricky for us there was bringing some life to it. Bodie's you've got all this stuff happening all around. It's easy to grab stuff with hers. We didn't see quite as much and the visual effects came in a little bit late. And so we tried different things like these electric trams driving around, um, and, uh, you know, and like some elevator beeps and ups and downs for that. Um, and then we ended up kind of pairing it back a bit um, because it just didn't, it just wasn't supported visually enough. So, um, but then when you get into like the store, for instance, like she has like this little memory store where she pulls up like her dad's memories and stuff. And that was where um, I tried to take a little bit more musical approach to it. Um, I really got inspired by like Inside Out and how they have like the memory um balls in that and um and so the cubes that when you you pop them out and everything i tried to make that like a musical kind of note that you know boom and then it slides out and and even for the atmos in the room i tried to make like a, a kind of like a musical drone that sort of played in in there and behind um you know and thankfully we had our we had torrent score uh early on so i was able to tune a lot of those things so they didn't conflict with what he was doing musically so um, but yeah, each of the head keys um, and those environments, they all kind of had their unique spin on them. And, and that's that was kind of the approach to it. What is it? The first time dad took me to the top of the Space Needle. Want to see? I'm good.
Yeah, you brought up the you brought up the music, which is uh, Torin Borodale's uh, score, who scored the entire season, and it's, it's a really lovely score. And there were certainly some moments where I wasn't really sure if I was hearing music or I was hearing sound design, which is always that's always that's always good fun. But you, you so you said that the music that you actually had the music while you were cutting, or was it mock-ups, or what, what were you working with? Yeah, so early on, um, Torn was doing mock-ups, and um, and he would get those into the picture um, cut, and and they would come to us, which was really great. And then they recorded stuff in batches for each of the episodes, and so I was kind of always on our our music editor, Kevin Banks, like, hey, do we got any new score that's been recorded, or do we have any new like crash downs that I can grab? And so um, it worked well for some of the earlier episodes as we got a little bit on in the show um we didn't get quite as many of those things but yeah it was super valuable having that um to work against as reference eric tell me a little bit about the music um in terms of from a, a mixed perspective how much like how were the tracks delivered to you how much separation did you get and how did you how did you approach it well this is something actually i wanted to bring up um i i was mixing the sound effects and slowly on the show there's actually a, a guy named christian cook who mixed the dialogue and music um, so Chris was, Chris was dealing with that stuff. Um, I think he's, I, for some reason, I don't think his name's on IMDb, which, um, but on the, on this, <clears throat> but as far as I recall, we, I think we had like 12 5.1 stems for each and then sort of an A and a B, um, for, for each cue that Kevin would put together. And, um, so it was quite complex, uh, that, that I could see from across the console sort of thing. Um, but also there was a, gave, uh, Chris and, and Kevin a lot of flexibility to, if they, if we, if we wanted to make some room for some sound design, we could do things without just taking the music out, obviously. So were they able to use the, uh, Dolby Atmos with the music to kind of spread things out a bit? Yep. Oh yeah, definitely. Chris was, uh, was using the Atmos to not in, more of just kind of a, um, in generally, I think, in a kind of a, a, a soundscape idea as opposed to moving things around or having stuff fly around a room or whatever. Like it wasn't, it's not really that kind of a score. So um, it was more just making it sound a little fuller and bigger and um, spreading it out. But he definitely was, was using that. Got it. So, the character of Key, the, the the setting of Key House it turns out is kind of a major character um, of the story in the show and it in some ways it almost feels like the house is kind of alive it's got a long history with his family and obviously all these magical things happen to it and it's set over some sea caves and this very kind of magical place so uh, tremendous possibilities for interesting sound design even from you know the 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 front door opening was a, a huge like present sound. So can you guys talk a little bit about sort of building that world and your approach to key house and how you, how you, you know, made that sound. Yeah. So, you know, key house was one of the first things that Rauf, um, who is our producer on the show, he's, he tasked us with is like, okay, let's, let's make this house alive. And I think all of us were really, really gun um, gunning to do that. Cause like, as you said, there was so many opportunities with the way they shot it, just the history that they build up um, about it and the mystery behind the house and stuff. And so um, a lot of the work that we tried doing was, you know, adding in a lot of wind textures. Um, we tried, you know, playing things from outside, whether it was like a, a squeaky swing or something or, um, 
you know, different different things. And then and then the other side of it too is just the progression over the show goes from like winter time to springtime um, and into the summer. And so we were trying to play a little bit with that as well. In that you know the winter time didn't really have a lot of birds, or it might just have like the odd crow here or there. But then as we get into um, spring and summer, we're introducing more birds and we're introducing some crickets at night and that sort of thing. Um, but, it, you know, one of the one of the challenges with it, though, was we wanted to do like creeks and like all this kind of like, you know, movement inside the house with the wind and stuff. And I think one of the challenges we came up against, though, was that it felt like somebody was in the house, which you would think would kind of go towards the character of the house. Well, that maybe there is somebody, but it was a bit too much and that it got a little distracting. So we had to be careful about how we played some of that stuff. Um, but, yeah, it was a huge, huge amount of fun doing it. Um and then I'm and I'm glad you brought up the doors because to be honest with you that was actually a big thing for me you know before I'd seen anything I had the scripts and I thought well look we're doing lock and key right like it's gonna need um, it's gonna need some cool doors it's gonna they're gonna have to fit nicely into this old house and stuff and so uh, my wife and I actually had a really fun trip out to this old mansion um, that's about 15 minutes from me um, that uh, it was the owner of uh, GM Canada. Uh, his house back in like 1917 it was built anyhow we spent like three or four hours at this house recording you know probably 14 different doors um (laughs) thankfully the security guard had actually earmarked for us as good sounding doors in the house um so yeah that along with with the with the keys actually as well like the the skeleton keys going in the keyholes um that was actually a big thing for me i really wanted to, to nail that um and i thought we could so yeah yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I, I appreciate that you guys, uh, kind of pulled that stuff back, but it definitely still comes through in some moments. I remember there was, I can't remember which episode it is, but there was a moment I remember I was, I was sitting there watching and I'm, I'm realizing like, I'm hearing like a low wind whistle through the house. And it really, it just gave you that sense of like, this place is really old. It's probably cold. It's not really weather type. And it just really contributed to the sense of kind of foreboding atmosphere. Yeah, I think, we, I think we tried to keep we tried to keep a character of the house, but but very subtle. So the one of the other things that happens a lot in the show is is you know I mentioned at the outset that the dad kind of died dies uh, under very mysterious circumstances, and the mystery of that is revealed over the course of the show. There's a lot of flashback work in the show, and a lot of you know we're we're uh, we're accessing memories, so we're spending a lot of time in you know in the past and, and in the present. Um, did that sort of, you know, nonlinear time structure, how did you guys play with that in terms of sound design? Did the past sound different than the present or what was your approach to that? Yeah, I think our approach was really, I think more in the, the transitions to like in and out of the flashbacks. Um, and, and those had like a, like a variation to them. Some were a little more subtle, some were a little more overt and it really kind of depended, uh, at what point in the story we're in. Um, I know early on we had some more overt kind of ones where we were flashing in and out of Rendell's murder and, um, you know, like we're in Tyler's hockey game or whatever. And uh, I think I used like a, a whistle, like a referee whistle that kind of reverses and then goes into like a slap shot, which ends up being the gunshot on the other side. Um and so in those cases, yeah, we're making a big deal about those transitions. But then as we get on like later in the series, um, we were using just like a really subtle kind of low end to kind of, you know, to get us in and out of those things. And so we didn't really want to call too much attention to it. Um, so I think that's really that, that was the direction that we were given anyhow to to, to approach the flashbacks. 
Well, I wanted to ask you about that because that's a great that's a great kind of you know showcase sequence in episode one. Um, you know when when uh, she Nina, who's the mother, uses the key uh, and then goes into this mirror room where things go really pretty scarily wrong. So, how did you guys approach the the uh, the sound design for that sequence? And and Eric, you know what what was happening in the mix on that sequence? Yeah, well, like I'll let Eric speak to the mix, obviously, but in terms of the um, the elements that we were providing for that, it was it was really just filling it out. Like there was, we needed a ton of glass breaking, and so you know I spent some time just in my studio here, you know, breaking glass and making it really sharp, and um, and I think sequencing is uh, sequencing it as well. Um, it needed to have a little bit of rhythm to it. You know, you, we could see like the glass breaking behind them, and so I was really trying to create these trails where. You know, it would it would break on screen and move right and move left and then and then off and around us and and trying to make those really definitive, um, so that Eric could kind of play them up and then tail them back and play them up and tail them back and it would have a bit of a rhythm to it. So it wasn't just like a cacophony, but an orchestrated cacophony, I guess, right? Of of glass breaking. Um, so yeah, but it was a ton ton of fun to to pull that one together. I think that was one of our big wins. You know, early on was that sequence. What the hell? That can't be real. Mom? Tyler! I have to go in. No! Here. Use this to get back when you find her, okay? All right. Be careful. try to take full advantage of the Atmos uh, capabilities with that. And so, um, the, pardon the pun, but we're trying to just to mirror what we were seeing sound wise a lot that, um, if you see a bunch of different reflections of Nina walking, then we hear like a hundred different footsteps kind of in sync, but not really, or, um, and, um, we spent a lot of time tracking all the camera movement. So when the, when the camera's spinning around through the mirrors and we're seeing um, different reflections of different voices um, in different places, 
again, tracking that stuff around the room uh, in, in with the Atmos panners um, to just kind of really nail it to the, to the visual. I really appreciate the tone of the show. It's, it's, um, it's obviously scary, but it's also, there's, 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 there's a lot of fun in it too. There's a really, that, that really fun moment in episode one when Bodhi is kind of skating around the house and it's almost, it kind of plays a little bit like a, almost like a tip of the hat to, uh, to the shining. Uh, you know, when, when, uh, for, uh, you know, when those shots of Danny kind of riding his, his, uh, uh, bike around the Overlook Hotel. And you can kind of tell that, like, you know, the, 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 the filmmakers are having some fun with this. Yeah. The tone of the show is really great. You know, like, it, you're oscillating between, like, a little bit of horror, a little bit of comedy, a little bit of family, um, a little bit of just kind of like fantasy and mystery. Um, and I think that's been, that was actually one of the, the great things about the show for us working on it is, um, is that they wanted to keep it a little bit lighter in spots. Um, you know, I know like I was sending some of these transitions back and forth to Rauf just to, for him to, to preview before our mixes and stuff. And, and he'd send it back to me like, no man, too horror, too horror. It's like, it's too shrieky or it's too like too, you know, percussive or whatever. Right. And, um, and so I'd go back at it and I'd send him something down, send him something back. that's a little bit more toned down. Um, but yeah, you know, like it, it's a family kind of show as well. Right. And so, um, so we're trying, we're trying to reserve our scary times for when we need them. We're not trying to, to play that too much all the time. They, if, if you're familiar with the books, there's much more sort of horror oriented and they actually made, uh, I believe a, a couple different pilots, um, in the past several years that were, and it wasn't until they toned down the horror and sort of made it more magical and, and focused on the family aspect of it, that that was, that was what clicked. So there's a, a, another one of my favorite kind of uh, signature elements and it's subtle, but it's really important is how they find the keys and the way they find the keys, the kids uh, is that the, the keys kind of whisper to them. Um, and at first, at first Bodhi is the only one who can hear it, but then the, the, uh, the others start to hear it as well. the 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 process of cre the creating the sound of the whispering because it's not it's not intelligible language that I could make out but how did you guys how did you guys arrive at the sound of what that was that was gonna that it was gonna be yeah the whispering was a lot of fun I, I really enjoyed this part um, again it was like one of the first things we had to do because we knew it was going to be a recurring kind of theme and motif you know through the series um, and I can't remember if it came from Roof or from Carlton, but somebody had said something about like lyrical, like a lyrical language. Um, they wanted it to be kind of like Elvin, but they were or Elvish, um, but they didn't want it to sound like Harry Potter either. So, um, but I kind of latched onto this lyrical part of it, and you know, one of the, my ideas was, okay, well, maybe I'll just try and find some poetry and I'll read it backwards. And that'll be kind of the language that we use. And so I grabbed like, I can't remember what it was, but like a, a chunk of Shakespeare, a chunk of, chunk of like Emily Dickinson or something like that. Um, and, and so I started 
just doing it backwards, whispering or reading it backwards, whispering, and then layering that up. And then I sent that off as a proof of concept. And, and they were like, yeah, we really like the language, but we don't like the male part of it. We don't like you sound too big and gruff, you know, for, for like the kids, it's gotta be something a little bit um, more enticing, I guess that, or welcoming, I guess, for, um, for the characters to want to, you know, to chase after. And so I ended up enlisting like my daughter and my wife and a nephew, a niece, and like three of the kids down the street from my house. <laughs> and so I brought them in kind of one at a time. I had, you know, like a half a dozen different phrases that I'd written out on a piece of paper for them and, uh, and just had them record each of the lines, you know, at different speeds and kind of different intensities. And uh, yeah, and then I pulled all that stuff back um, and tried to start layering it. And then there was a lot of experimenting with the layers as well. Um, you know, I had a lot of like reverse delays and a lot of um, more just like sustained kind of sort of tones that would go through it. Um, and that was sort of the first iteration of it. But then by the time we finally got it down after we got notes uh, from our producers and notes from Netflix, it really um, simplified a lot so that we were playing not single voices all the time, but it would be sort of a single voice that would start and then grow into multiple voices and then just cut off. And I actually really ended up liking it that way, as opposed to how I'd had it before. It was, you know, just the simple aspect of it, I think sort of told the story a little bit more clearly. Um, but, uh, yeah, but it was, it was fun to do. And, and I think a great, uh, a great piece for the show. We started off with the whispers being very much kind of um, not uh, physically connected to anything. So you hear you're hearing things in different places in, in the room, and and sort of what's what's that kind of feel? And and again, we we toned that back and took out some of the delays and the, and made it a more focused sound that kind of draw like would draw the kids into the key. Talk to me about episode 10. There are so many great sound moments in episode 10 with the, with the Omega gate and uh, like the shadow monsters that come in that you, that, that must've, you guys must've spent a lot of time on that episode. Yeah, that episode was huge. It was it was one of those ones actually where there was so much that happened over the course of I think like the first ten or fifteen minutes of the show that when we were in playback, we played it back, and you're like, "Are you for real? That was all that work just gone in like ten or fifteen minutes?" Um, so yeah, as you said, there was uh, we had the creatures, um, which was something that was a lot of fun. Uh, I think you know our direction on that. Um, was that they were these shadow uh, monsters from sort of like another realm. They were sort of demonic. 
Um, but there was definitely a lot of mystery around them. So we didn't have tons to go from in terms of like mythology that the, that the writers or the producers had, had kind of built up behind it. Um, I know, you know, one of the concepts uh, I tried working with was that as the shadows sort of creep along the ground and then into the house was that they tried to affect sort of the surface they were on. So you'd hear the gravel kind of rumbling and, and uh, shifting. And then as it moved into the house, you'd hear the floors creaking and up the walls, you'd hear the drywall, you know, cracking a little bit. Um, and so that was fun um, just to kind of play that mystery part. And we had like a vocal element to that that, um, that I worked on. Uh, just to kind of give it some drama, right? And uh, But then we have like the significant difference for them is when they pop off the walls and then they become a little bit more sort of typical creature. And that's where we start adding, you know, more ele- like animal elements and, and things like that to give them, you know, some of the ferocity and um, and uh, like their attacks and their growls and all that kind of thing. Well, I think, yeah, I'm just thinking probably the, the mirror room stuff or the mirror door stuff, um, or the, what is, what is it, the... Uh... The prison of the self, I think it's called. Um, yeah, that was that's just every time I I've, I've watched that, like, yeah, that we really nailed it with that one. That's that's an awesome um, environment. And um, and inside Bodie's head was also just so much fun um, with all the different sounds and all the like. I I just love the those kind of sounds. It makes me happy to hear them. All those kind of happy game sounds. So. Um, yeah, those are those are two memorable scenes. Sometimes with the kind of fantastical atmospheres and a, obviously a show that's shot primarily on location, sometimes the the production tracks are kind of a, an interesting challenge to work with. But how what was the material that came in to you guys, and how was it recorded on set, and and did it pose any interesting challenges for you? For the most part, the the production sound was was really well recorded, um, which leaves a lot of room for both for sound design to do things because we're not kind of dealing with noise or challenges in, in the production sound. But also um, Dustin Harris, who's the dialogue supervisor, did a lot of treatment on things like uh, when when Shadow Dodge in episode 10, um, the treatment of her voice and stuff. Um, and having clean production sound, you can do a lot with it uh, without getting artifacts and things like that. So. Um, yeah, for the most part, the, I think that the production sounds like did what it needed to do. It was just well done. Yeah, so I, I think for the most part, like Eric said, the, the tracks came in really good. I know there was we had a few scenes that were difficult, um, in particular like the sea caves, um, because all of that was set and you know it basically just sounded like wood and um, not styrofoam, but you know like plastic, really dull sounding. Obviously not rocks or whatever in terms of their production movements and. Um, and just the space around it. Uh, I know we had another scene as well that uh, that was difficult. Uh, They're walking through the walking through the forest, and it's just a ton of leaves uh, on their footsteps and things like that. And so, um, but the cast really came through. Dustin uh, Harris, who was our dialogue supervisor, really came through on on uh, on pulling together some really great ADR for each of those scenes. That sits really naturally. Um, and our Foley team as well. We got to give a huge shout out to them. They provided a ton of detail on on all of our tracks and stuff, and and really helped out some of those scenes that had to get filled out with ADR. So, guys, it's been really fun talking with you today about uh, Lock and Key. This is really it's a special show uh, with some pretty amazing sound, and and a lot of your peers in the industry have called out, like I said, the Dolby Atmos uh, mix on it as being really spectacular. So, congratulations. This is. Pretty amazing work. You guys are based up in Toronto. Eric, you mix it at Deluxe, right? And JR, you were Sound Dogs? 
You see, I'm, I'm actually freelance, so I work at a number of different places. Um, the Deluxe and Technicolor are kind of the two um, big houses in Toronto. Um, where I, there, that's where I've been doing most of my work for the last several years. Yeah, Sound Dogs is where I hang my hat most of the time. Um, I do a little bit of work outside of there, but uh, you know, Nelson uh, Ferreira, who heads it up, he's just been really great to me, and I've, I've just learned a ton there. Um, and uh, yeah, so I do I do a lot of my work through them. Great. Well, it's been it's been a great pleasure having you guys on the show and, and talking with you today. Um, obviously, Netflix has announced that there's going to be a season two, but it hasn't uh, started production yet. I mean, I I can't wait because you guys you guys left these poor characters in quite the lurch. We got we got Ellie Ellie stuck behind the Omega Gate. Like what? Well, how, what's going to happen? Well, thanks again, guys, for uh, for doing the show and for taking part in the conversation today. Oh, yeah, you bet, Glenn. Thanks so much uh, for all you guys are doing with this show. It's really great. Yeah, thanks a lot, Glenn and Michael. Great. Well, this has been another episode of the Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection podcast. Today we were talking about lock and key. Come back again next week. We're going to be talking with the team uh, which uh, did the, the, the show Unorthodox about the work on that show. So, JR, Eric, thanks again for, for joining us and doing the show. It was great talking to you today. This is Glenn Kaiser signing off from the Dolby Institute. Bye-bye.